Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Uh, We ask that it bears fruit, Lord Jesus, that today, as Jesus warns, we would not be those who miss out on the day of visitation, the day when the gospel is proclaimed and the king uh, has come, and as we wait for him to return again. We pray for all this in your name. Amen. Uh, So during my undergrad years, um, we had professors who taught our reporting classes uh, constantly warn you to not bury the lead. And in journalism, the lead is the main point. It's the piece of information everyone is waiting for. It's the nugget that you as the reader want to hear to make sense of everything that's going to follow. And so when you have the lead, you lead with the lead. You don't backload it. And there's all sorts of humorous instances of what happens when someone backloads the lead. For instance, in the TV show The Office, one character gives the update of the health of one of his coworkers, and he says this, Meredith was hit by a car. I took her to the hospital. The doctors tried to save her life. They did the best they could, and she's going to be okay. And in this instance, the lead is funny because it's a good lead, but it's buried behind all these other details that make us wonder if it's actually going to happen. But sometimes the bearing of the lead is less humorous, and it could be confusing or disorienting. Take, for example, a company-wide email that you get, and you read of all the exciting things going on at the company. There's exciting new changes, a fresh start, new ideas to bring us into this new competitive digital workspace, only to find in the next sentence that most of you are going to be laid off. And for the last 10 chapters in the book of Luke, Luke has been working toward this moment, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, the holy city. It was the headline story. The one who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah was heading into the center of Jewish political and religious significance. And even as readers of Luke's gospel, we too can feel the excitement of the crowd in this text, which is often called the triumphal entry. But if we zoom out a little bit from the scene where Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives, what we see in what was just read, Luke chapter 19, 29 through 48, that the triumphal entry was for many a triumphal disappointment. Jesus seemed to bury the lead. It seemed to be confusing. It it wasn't what what the people wanted to hear, what they expect to hear. All of the newspapers were ready to insert their own headline, their own portrait of what they thought Jesus came to do. But at the end, it seems that the main point of Jesus's ministry, the lead of the Messiah of God, was misunderstood, confused, or maybe even lost. They thought the lead would be this. Kingdom restored, the king is crowned. But instead, when this king comes, he laments the holy city and he rebukes the temple, saying in essence to the Jews that the king you hoped to accept is the king that you currently reject. And behind this veil of disappointment and confusion, Jesus is revealing to us good news. The better news that's actually being accomplished in Jerusalem, he's not burying the lead. He's not hiding who he is. He's not failing in his purpose, but instead he's showing us the lead. He's showing us the purpose that if left to our own eyes, we would be unable to see. Jesus is revealing for us the significance of who he is 
in the kingdom of God. In a story that highlights people grasping and pleading for peace, we find peace only when we understand our lives and our story with Jesus at the center. And this is our main point today. We're going to see that Jesus is the man of God, executing the plan of God so that people can be saved by the hand of God. So the man of God, the plan of God, and the hand of God is going to be what we're going to look at today. And if you remember way back in Luke 9, verse 53, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And so now, as Jesus is nearing his target, if we were reading this like we read a novel, which I encourage you to do at some point, to sit down and read the book of Luke as you would a a, a novel. It is a story. It's true history and it's theology. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Do it. And so as Jesus is approaching this target, we would assume that the pace would quicken. When you watch a movie uh, or maybe you read a book written by anybody except for Tolkien, like when you get close to the, to the triumphal moment, things pick up. There's these cutscenes, and they're preparing for battle. But Luke kind of takes this like slow, methodical, expectation-producing pace. And you see that where in verse 29, verse 37, and verse 41, he uses terms like he was drawing near, he was drawing near, he drew near, And we're just like, when is he going to be there? Are are we there yet? But it's not until Jesus appears in the temple that he's officially entered the city of Jerusalem. And Luke brings us here in the beginning verses. uh, The scene comes as Jesus has been traveling down from northern Galilee. And they're coming uh, to Jerusalem from the east. And so there's this mountain pass. uh, The Mount of Olives is kind of one of these mountains that's there. And so he's on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem about to go up the Mount of Olives and then back down into Jerusalem on the temple side. And Jesus says this as there's a small town approaching. He says, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus commissions two of his disciples to go into a city, and to do these things. And wouldn't you love to be one of these disciples? I'm the kind of guy who feels awkward asking the Chick-fil-A host for more Chick-fil-A sauce, let alone somebody who goes into a village and just commandeers somebody's donkey. But Jesus uh, tells his disciples to do this. But the beautiful thing, what Jesus calls all of us to do in moments of discipleship where we're uncertain and things seem unclear, he prepares us for the difficulties. He tells them exactly what to do and what to say when challenges arise. And sure enough, they go, and in verses 32, and 40, 32 through 34, they go and they get the donkey, and the person comes out, and they respond that the Lord has need of it, and Jesus has proved himself faithful to them. And so they bring the colt, and they find their way back to Jesus, and then they put Jesus on the colt, beginning in verse 35. And so what's going on here? Well, Luke is teaching us in the form of a narrative. And so as we continue the narrative, his point has become clear. Look at verses 35 through 40, where he says this. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on it, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, 
if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so the significance of what's going on here is being displayed to us by the positive response of the crowds and the negative response of the Pharisees. And both of these are showing to us our first point today, which is that Jesus is the man of God. Jesus is the man of God. And you either respond positively or negatively to that reality. Jesus is heralded here as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, he's God's guy. He's not just another prophet. He is the one on whom God has put his name who is going to establish his kingdom. Now, Luke, as he wrote this, is writing primarily to the Greeks who didn't have a super detailed understanding of Jewish scripture. But Matthew, writing to the Jews in his gospel account, shows us more of what happened in Matthew 21, verses 4 through 5. He ties it to prophecy when he says this, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so Matthew is here tying it to a prophecy in the book of Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet in the ninth chapter. And the coming of the king calls for great rejoicing and praise because he's the king. And it's almost as if the crowds at this point are reading that good novel and they finally understood the great twist, the great inversion, that moment where everything begins to make sense. And so they proclaim something that's taken directly out of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 reads like this. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But you'll notice in citing Psalm 118, they put a noun in place of the pronoun. It's no longer blessed is he, but what does it say in the text? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke is affirming to us that the crowds at this moment are like watching the movie and it's coming alive to them. They say, well, if he is coming and he's coming to Jerusalem and he's claiming to be the Messiah and he's done mighty works, then he has got to be the king. He's the one we've been waiting for. And that's why they marvel at the mighty works that they have seen, but you'll notice that they're expectant of more. Blessed is the king who is come. Blessed is the one who's going to do even more marvelous signs, even more than what we hoped to accomplish. And here's great hope for all of us. The more we begin to read our Bibles with Jesus at the center, the more easy praise becomes. We see who he is. We see him as the center of God's plan. We see all the things he's done for us. And praise will naturally flow from our hearts. You see, it's true. These people still lived uh, not only on the other side of the Jerusalem wall, but on the other side of the cross as us. They don't have a fully formed understanding of atonement and penal substitution. But what they knew is that here is the king. And even with that mere simple heart of faith, Jesus affirms their worship. And we know he affirms it because immediately the crowd's worship is challenged. The Pharisees see this prophetic worship ceremony and they call out to Jesus. You'll notice how the crowds call him the king and the Pharisees in the subtle, uh, putting Jesus in his place where they call him merely teacher. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus says to them, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
Jesus in all his glory is so worthy of worship that when our eyes are open to see him for who he is, he draws praise out of us like moths to a light. But that praise in a fallen world is still often opposed. But even when the world tries to silence you, take notice of the heart of your king. He commends you. He speaks in your defense. The Pharisees found it completely unfit for Jesus to be receiving praise like this for two particular reasons. The first is that they didn't believe he was the king. And if Jesus isn't the king, then these crowds are committing cosmic blasphemy. That this was foolish worship. This was scandalous worship. And they didn't believe that God would send his Messiah in this way. That's why they didn't like Jesus. Peace and glory and the kingdom, it couldn't look like this man. This is not what they expected. God would not bring deliverance in this way. My daughter is in third grade, and she already feels the weight of these uh, positive and negative responses to the description of who Jesus is. She came home from class the other day, and she told me how all of her friends say, oh my God, at everything in the world. And she said, as many of us do as grown adults in various places with various sins, that I want to do it because I don't want to feel different but I also know that I shouldn't talk about God that way. What a beautiful burden. When we see the beauty of Jesus, we refuse to even talk about him in casual and ordinary ways. People find it odd, but Jesus finds it beautiful and perfectly fitting in whatever circumstance you're in. There's a blessed burden when the worship of Jesus sets us apart from the worship of of the world. It is difficult. It is full of tension, but it is met with the sweet affirmation of Jesus who speaks in your defense and says, but they see it. If they were quiet, the stones would cry out. So first, the Pharisees didn't believe he was king. But secondly, because they didn't believe he was king, they feared the consequences of Jesus's claim to be king. You see, if Jesus wasn't God's king, if Jesus wasn't the salvation and peace that God had long prophesied, then he's a danger to all of the peace they presently had. He challenged the status quo. And as Jesus was descending, just geographically, the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem was kind of the city that was uh, significant because of how it stood geographically. It had valleys and mountains. It made a good fortress city. And so as he's descending the Mount of Olives, his whole procession would have been visible to the city. They would have seen this. They would have seen him being treated like a king. Perhaps even the Roman officials uh, and soldiers in the city would hear this crowd saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And if Rome heard that there was a Jewish king who had come, coming to rival Caesar as king, then the Pharisees feared that the peace they had with Rome, the peace they had to conduct worship as they had been for the last uh, century, it was going to be challenged. It was going to be threatened. If Jesus is the king, then he's immediately at odds with the rival kings of the day. And the same is true in our own heart. The authority of Jesus challenges the other places of authority. It challenges the other places we perceive to find peace. So don't make the same mistake as the Pharisees. They rejected the true worship of Jesus because they trusted in peace with Rome more than they trusted in the one who promised peace in the heavens and glory in the highest. 
They didn't want to upset the apple cart. A new coming authority would do just that. They weren't certain Jesus could provide a better peace than what Rome did, while at the same time they loathed Rome because it oppressed them. But how often do we bemoan our slavery to sin while at the same time finding an odd sort of comfort in sin's security? Where we want someone to free us from it, but to be truthful, we've found a way to make it with sin present in our lives. And it's almost more threatening and more ominous to face the consequences of a new king. So easily do we trust our sin more than we trust the king. And the truth is, if Jesus isn't bigger than your sins, if Jesus isn't bigger than Rome, then don't worship Jesus. But this is the king. He is bigger. He is the authority. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And if that king strides into your town, if he strides into your heart, then we of all people should take hope because someone bigger has shown up. And here's our second point today. When the arrival of the king, the man of God, we see the plan of God. And so here comes the king into God's capital city, the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And so what is he going to do? What would have the expectations been? We're coming up on elections in November. All of you have expectations for who you vote for. You have things you want them to do. Ballot items you want them to execute. These Jews also had specific things and expectations they wanted the Messiah to do. In the Old Testament, the plight of Israel was seen as connected to two specific geographic centers. One was the city of Jerusalem, and one was the temple of God. In the prophets and in the histories when you're reading, you could assume at nearly every page, one of two things is being fought for. The first, they're trying to rebuild, restore, or establish Jerusalem as a safe place, as the seat of the kingdom and of the rule of God. Or secondly, they're trying to recapture the Ark of the Covenant, to build the tabernacle that surrounds the Ark of the Covenant, to construct the temple or to rebuild the temple so that God's presence could dwell in the midst of his people. God's place and God's presence, God's rule and God's relationship was central to their hope. And so the Jewish idea of the Messiah would have been that he would have come like Nehemiah, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem so that the rule of God was unchallenged to foreign occupants. Or perhaps, that, like in Ezekiel's vision, the royal presence of God would fill the temple and the glory cloud of God's Shekinah glory would dwell on and a river of life would flow out of it. That's what they expected. That's the lead they thought they'd see when the king strode into town. So you can imagine the screeching sounds and record scratches and furrowed brows when we read about what happens when the king comes to town. Jesus catches his first look of Jerusalem in verse 41, and he doesn't rejoice. He weeps. And he doesn't weep because Rome is there. He weeps because a spirit of rejection is there. Verse 41 says this, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you had known this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground 
you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's a lot of use if you're circling repeated words in Bible study. <laughs> it's not looking good for Jerusalem. But it gets worse. Jesus then enters the temple, the sacred place of the Jews. Certainly the temple is where God's going to begin his redemptive program. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes those who are in it. Because they were not worshiping God. They were not offering praises to God. Instead, they were extracting things from others. They were making profit to ourselves. Verse 45 tells us this, that, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The pride of Israel was Jerusalem. The hope of Israel was the temple, but here comes the king in the name of the Lord, and in seeing the royal city, he weeps, and in entering the sacred temple, he sweeps. Of the city, he declares destruction, and in the place of God's presence, he declares depravity. Empty, faithless, destroyed. I'm sure at different points, maybe we've experienced something like this, in your walk with Jesus, and you're considering of Christianity. Maybe you're here today and you're wondering what the gospel is about. Maybe you found circumstances where you gave to Jesus a pretty good script that you thought if he was real, he would fulfill this in your life. That you would find the spouse you wanted, you'd get the job you needed. You wouldn't be scraping to ends meet, living paycheck to paycheck. And maybe when those things fail to become true, you ask yourself, is this really the plan of God? Is Jesus really the man of God? Whatever you feel was certainly compounded for those who met Jesus in Jerusalem this day. So, what went wrong? If the plan of God was to restore a people and to be with them in his presence, then is Jesus the Messiah? If Jesus is not the Messiah, you have no business being here today. So why are we here? Well, C.S. Lewis once famously said that God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Oftentimes we're frustrated that Jesus doesn't rid us of the problems that we've identified in our own life as the greatest. But that's because, apart from Jesus, we don't actually understand which problem is the greatest. Oftentimes we're disappointed at the power of Jesus because we think too small. The problem for the Jews was bigger than foreign governments and a tourist temple. Our problems today are bigger than our relationships or our politics. You see, Jesus was able to uphold the plan of God and also uphold uh, or and also condemn both Jerusalem and the temple because the plan of God was always bigger than Jerusalem or the temple. The plan of God suffered no lack when the walls of Jerusalem came down not because the kingdom of God was not real, but because the king of the kingdom came to establish a kingdom without walls of every tongue, tribe, and nation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. While the author of Hebrews holds out for us the promise of a heavenly Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth, God's kingdom under God's king is no longer tied to a geographic city or a geographic center but it will go forth to the ends of the earth. Do you realize that? 
that there's no Mecca for the Christian because there's no walls to the kingdom. That to long for a specific place to worship God is to have a longing too weak, is to have aspirations not big enough. Jesus was able to declare the temple empty. Why? Because there is a greater presence of God than the temple. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The one who John says came and tabernacled among us. And when this king establishes his people, we no longer need to go to a place to experience God's presence. When we come to church, we're not experiencing God's presence any differently than you do at home. So why do we come to church? It's because together we get to display the beauty of God's presence. As Christians, when we have faith in Jesus Christ and are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, you have not gone to God, but God has come to you. We have the presence of God through Jesus Christ by faith, upheld by the Holy Spirit and honored by the Father himself. The temple was too small a vessel for God's presence. The plan of God is better than we could ever hope for because it's not confined to a place, it's confined to a person, and that person is the king, Jesus Christ. But look at how this king is treated. Luke 19, 47 through 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Here, the king they expected was the king they rejected. Instead of enthroning him and honoring him, they doubled down on their rejection and they sought to kill him. Why? Because of the very things Jesus did, the toppling over of idols and incomplete understandings. When Jesus got to Jerusalem, he didn't ride into Herod's palace like they would have expected and kick out the puppet king. In fact, he completely neglected the Roman quarter of Jerusalem. You would have thought that's where your warrior prince would first start. When he went to the temple, he didn't start amassing religious zealots. Instead, he started kicking out self-righteous sellers. Instead, he went to the very things these men looked for for hope, and he, in a way that only Jesus did, both criticized them, but also promised their fulfillment in him. He showed that their greatest problem was not Rome, but their greatest problem was the rejection of him. And towards Jesus, like the crowds and the Pharisees, we too either have a positive or negative response. Their lack of faith, Jesus says, is the enemy that held them captive. They were not under Rome's rule. They were under sin's rule. And this is the rule that Jesus came to free us from. This is where the lead of our life and all of our expectations get corrected by the true reality of our king. Jesus shows us who he is so that we can understand who we are. Jesus came to bring us back to God, not by kicking out Rome, but by kicking out unbelief. And this is the last point this morning, where we see that Jesus, who is the man of God, who has come to execute the plan of God is also the hand of God. To do what? To save sinners. To save those who live in constant rejection. Because there's a problem still here, isn't there? Even if you're on Team Jesus at this point, you realize that by the end of this passage, sinful men seem to have taken control of the narrative. 
they sought to destroy Jesus. And this is something we'll talk about in a, little, or in a couple weeks that they've been seeking to do for most of the book of Luke, almost two years long. This uh, violent, hostile, murderous passion was in their hands, and they are the ones who have the power. And it seems here, if you look in verse 30, or 48, that the only hope that keeps Jesus safe was this mass of people who hung on his words. But notice what else it says. But these men did not find anything they could do. We may try to wrestle against Jesus as king, but in the end, you will find there is nothing you can do. If you reject the rule of Jesus, your life will always and only be a lack of peace. And you will strive, and you will seek to earn, and you will seek to worship, and you will seek to run, but the end of your result is that you can do nothing to find peace. But that's why Jesus came. He came so that those who stand opposed to the king might have peace. Maybe you have tried to find peace with God. And maybe despite your best attempts at reading your Bible, at going to church, giving of tithes, hosting 10,000 booze at the Family Fall Festival, you find you have no peace. Maybe you find that there is nothing you could do. But because Jesus is God's true king, there's never nothing he can do. He is always able to do something about our peace. He is the one to whom there's peace in heaven and glory to God. That's the beauty of this whole passage. Why did Jesus go into such intricate details about the cult? It's always important when we're reading the Bible to ask, why is this in here? So Jesus is telling us these kind of weird details. Like he could have just said, Jesus said there'd be a cult. They went and got the cult. But what is Luke walking us through? Well, he's telling us uh, the cult. He's telling us where it's tied up. He's telling us no one sat on it. He's telling us someone might come and say this and that you need to say this. And all of that is granted. Why? Because he's showing us at the end of this story, just like many times in our lives, where we feel the narrative is spiraling out of control. And the lead we hope for is not going to be the reality we get, that this happened not at the hands of sinful men, but at the meticulous providence of a sovereign God. That men were not driving the ship. Jesus was. He was in control at every step. Everything was going according to plan. Israel rejected Jesus because... The terms of peace in verse 42 were hidden from their eyes. How was it hidden? Why couldn't they see it? Well, it was hidden because they can only think of Jesus or the Messiah in terms of waging war against the sinner, who in this instance was most clearly Rome, or was most clearly the tax collectors who Jesus just ate with, or was most clearly the prostitutes who Jesus cared for, was most clearly the obvious sinners. And yet Jesus has come and did nothing with Rome and rebuked the religious elite. But if sinners are to have any hope, they need to first see the king who came to declare peace first. If we only view Jesus and we only ask Jesus to wage war on that which is out of place, we will never realize that we are the ones out of place. We are the ones who have rejected God. Jesus will come to wage war, 
But the beautiful good news of the gospel is that he has first come to offer peace. And that's the significance of the donkey here. One commentator said this, he said, despite its widespread use by all, the donkey and mule were also evidently a staple of ancient Near Eastern royal ceremonies. He goes on to show both in biblical things and in other types of Babylonian or Middle Eastern literature, that at coronation ceremonies and festivals, the king, kings rode donkeys. Why is the donkey so symbolic of kingship and celebrations? Because when a king got on a war horse, you knew war was near. You knew there was probably no peace, or at least threatened peace. But when a king got on a colt, we took a deep breath. It is so safe that you don't need to mount black beauty. It's like, go get Eeyore. Ain't nothing coming for you. The walls are big and the swords are sharp. The armies are standing. You're secure. The king is on the throne. Jesus didn't march in to wage war on Rome. Jesus came in to offer peace to sinners. In fact, it's this very context of Zechariah chapter 9. The prophecy that, these, uh, that Matthew ties this to uh, introduces a king who sits on a donkey in Zechariah 9. And look at what happens in Zechariah 9.10. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, peace, and the war horse from Jerusalem, peace, and the battle bow will be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus came to bring peace. But the problem is sinners didn't want it. And here's what Jesus' prophecy reminds us of. Jesus will not always be on a colt. One day, the king on the horse comes back. One day, the era of the offer of peace is rescinded. And those who stand opposed to the king will get the war they always wanted. And it won't go well. But in Jesus, the offer of peace is made to those who have rejected the king, to those who are his enemy. But you must, as Jesus says, accept the terms of his peace. Oh, Jerusalem, if you would have known the peace that was offered. And so take note of this text. The history of Jerusalem and the beauty of the temple meant nothing in regards to Jesus. Take note of that. Your family's history of worship does not bring you peace. Your seemingly cleaned up life is no warrant for peace. Your attendance to church is no promise of peace. Your well put together person, your touristy habits of grace, the things that everyone sees as beautiful in your life, means nothing for peace unless that peace is on the terms of Jesus. What are the terms of peace? What are the terms of peace Jesus speaks about? And did you notice the unique way that Jesus or that Luke presented Jesus's momentary salvation here? While the powerful people are plotting for his destruction, why couldn't they find a way? Look back at verse 48 because the people were hanging on his words. And that Greek word for hanging, it's a compound word that basically means to be suspended from or hung from. It's the only time this word is used in scripture. And I think Luke is giving us a little bit of a head nod here. A head nod of what's about to come in Jerusalem. 
You see, for the moment, there was temporary peace. Why? Because the crowds hung from Jesus' words. But in a few days, there would be an offer of eternal peace because the king was going to be hung for the sins of the people. Jesus rode a donkey because he came with the offer of peace for us. He came to declare war on the real problem on the cross. It was sin, not Caesar, who Jesus came to fight. Peace has come to us exclusively and only through the cross of the king. And that peace can be there for you too. This king can be your king. And here Jesus reveals uh, what was hidden. It was sin that blinded the eyes of the Pharisees to see. And if that's been you, then realize that what God has hidden at particular times in his own divine mystery, he reveals it here and here alone in Jesus Christ. The cross reveals what sin conceals. Here is the sovereign hand of God. Here is the offer of peace who have, uh, to those who have tried to find it in every possible way, but haven't yet found it. Here is the triumphal entrance that brings not an end to Rome, but an end to death itself. Here is the king who has come to free us from judgment by enduring judgment for us. Here is the king who has come to solve bigger battles than you could ever imagine. Here is the king who has come with power greater than the armed forces of all the Western nations. Here is the king who is more spotless and beautiful than your greatest political hero. Here is the king who offers peace greater than you could ever imagine. Here is the king who is Christ's king. And he can be ours through faith. So how do we apply this to our lives today? I can think of two primary ways in closing. First, I want us to notice the evangelistic emotions of Jesus. You see that in verse 41. Here Jesus gazes at the city, which in a few short days will unlawfully, arrogantly, and unjustly put him to death. When people are unjust to you and angry towards you, what's your typical response? But notice Jesus's. In his response, in his sinless perfection, in his divine affection, he weeps over the lost. God's wrath is real. It is not foreign, nor is it out of place. But it is never separated from his attributes of love and compassion. For all who remain in sin, judgment will come. The horse will return. But now, if that's you, notice how your Savior weeps for you. The Puritan, Stephen Sharnock, says it this way. He says, God never uses his justice to crush men till he has used his kindness to allure them. Jesus desires to free you from the tyranny of sin. Those who are believers, does Jesus, how does, how does he do this? How does Jesus allure him, people to himself? Well, Paul helps us know this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 through 6-2, where he says this, therefore we, that is those who worship the king, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Working together with him then, we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Helped you. Behold, now is the favorable, favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Dear church, might we be people who are so motivated by judgment, by those who have missed out on the day of visitation, that we come and say that Christ has visited for peace today. To come to him today. And might we pause before we even go to the streets and might we go and pray that Jesus strikes our heart with such religious affection that we are burdened by the eternal realities of souls in our midst, in our church, in our homes, in our workplaces. Might we realize that though we weep for them, we have hope because Christ has weeped for us. He has saved us from our sins, and so now we know that he will save others as well. Let us be ambassadors for this king. Second, let us worship Jesus louder than the rocks. We live in Missoula. The beauty of God's creation is noticeable here. People pay lots of money to see our rocks They clamor to post about our rocks. We make sacrifices in our calendars to experience our rocks. Why? Because rocks are good. Psalm 19 puts it this way. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Brothers and sisters, we know that God's creation is not silent. But if the skies merely proclaim the handiwork of God, how much more ought the church, which is God's handiwork, to declare his glory. How much more ought we to rise to the challenge to make the beautiful big sky country we live in look silent compared to the praise of the church? Creation is the canvas of God's redemption, but the church is the center of his unique affection. So we sing, not because we are, as Paul says in Romans, witnesses like creation is to redemption, but we are objects of redemption. The king has not come so that creation sings. The king has come so that the church sings, so that saints sing, so that you worship and that your kids worship. This is the plan of God. Consider this as we conclude today and we take the Lord's Supper. We sing in worship. Let's let the stones be silent and let's let the saints be resounding. Let us resound even as the old hymn that sings this. Ride on, ride on in majesty. In lowly pomp, ride on to die. O Christ, your triumphs now begin. Or conquered death and conquered sin. Ride on, ride on in majesty. In lowly pomp, ride on to die. Bow your meek head to mortal pain. Then take, O Christ, your power and reign. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you affix in our hearts the centrality of Jesus as he is. The centrality of Jesus, which shows us the problem of our sin and the plan of God, which is bigger than we ever imagined. And may we be those who worship in response. 
that we hang on the words of Christ and we apply it daily to our lives because that same Christ was hung so that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord Jesus, we pray that you're honored in our worship this morning. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the King. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Amen.